It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the programme this evening, a few weeks ago before the new restrictions came into place, Claire O'Connor and myself visited artist, grower, writer and filmmaker Lisa Fingleton at her home near Ballybunion in County Kerry where she told us about lots of things including the local food project. Maria Shader from GS1 joins us on the programme to tell us about the work she does with food and drink producers and in particular the launch of a new interactive map that identifies the Blossnerin finalist and award-winning food and drink producers in all corners of Ireland. And then finally at the end of the show this evening, blogger Helen Cook from thiswindinglife.org is going to encourage us to slow down and give advice on food and drink sleep sounds good to me. But before we hear from tonight's guests, let me tell you how to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste. You can make contact by emailing me s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation, and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So a few weeks ago, before the new restrictions came into force, Claire O'Connor from Delicious Kingdom told me about artist, grower, writer and filmmaker Lisa Fingleton and the local food project. I was intrigued, so Colette set up a visit to Lisa's farm outside Ballybunion in County Kerry. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Lisa, thanks a million for having us here at your farm. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. It's a great space. How long have you been here? Uh, I think we've been here, my partner bought it maybe 20 years ago, and we've been here full-time 15 years. And you're building at the moment. We hear them knocking away there. Oh, yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) yes. Um, We decided that we wanted to kind of um, do as much work as we could to reduce our carbon footprint, obviously, and to insulate the house. And the house is over 200 years old. So I think that's quite challenging. And look, there's lots of polytunnels. There's lots of things growing. Like, how did it, what did you start with? Because this looks like a number of years work now. This didn't happen overnight. I suppose we were both very passionate about food. I grew up, my dad grew all our own food when we were young, so it never dawned on me that anyone would do anything differently. So when we moved here, the very first thing we did was make a garden um, clear for raised beds and put in a polytunnel. So that was, that That tunnel's, yeah, that tunnel's quite old. You're not from Kerry originally? No, from Leash. Okay. Yeah, from the Midlands. Okay. So yeah. And do you notice a big change then living close to the coast? Oh, I just love living in the coast. Like I, I always, Leash is the only county that doesn't touch a county that touches the sea. So we always felt, if we can follow that one, it, it's the only, yeah, we're so inland. So I always missed, um, I just always loved the sea. And um, it's, it's fantastic, yeah, it's great. And also, I suppose, in terms of organic growing, you know, you have access to seaweed, um, you know, for, for like fertiliser for the soil and for, you know, manure over the winter and things like that. So that's a huge bonus. So you're big into using what's on your doorstep and the resources that you have to hand. Everything kind of comes from here, really. There's nothing. Even even when we were looking at um, doing up the, the house and kind of insulating the house, I think every single thing has come from within 10 to 15 miles of the house. You know, so all the, all the people who are working on the house are all local and we bought all the materials from within. 
certainly within 20 miles. Now, everything that you grow, tell us about some of the things you grow. I see tomatoes, there's garlic outside. You don't eat it all yourself. <laughs> there's, well, there's too much of it well, for you to... Well, all we wanted to do was to be sustainable ourselves and to feed visitors and family. But I suppose over the years, we've come to realise um, the the real problem underlying food in Ireland and, and that we're not... People are not connected with their food. So um, Rena, my partner with Leah Farm, set up a Ballybunion community market last year. And that's been fantastic because Leah Farm grow great food. We have great food here. Danny Scanlon also has fantastic potatoes and carrots and everything. So it's been a great opportunity for local people to be able to come on a Saturday morning and access really good food, as well as craft and art and all sorts of other beautiful things. But that was in Kilcooley's Garden in Ballybunion. So that kind of took off um, just to try and, I suppose, reach out to the community more and, and as I said, give people an opportunity to taste what it's like eating food that's grown literally within a mile of the town, you know. Because there is a huge difference in the taste. The flavour is, is much better whenever it's grown locally, I yeah. think. Oh, absolutely. And I think the fact that, you know, I suppose the fact that we're... That, that, that this is organic and it's um, taking seaweed and all the different nutrients into the food, I think that makes a huge difference as well. But also just even, it's just a feel-good thing as well, isn't it, that you're 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 eating something that's literally been picked and fresh. It's not been travel travelling halfway around the world. Um, but they say that food, particularly things like honey, that the closer you can eat it to where it was, say, grown or, or produced, the, the better it is for us because... It's just better for our systems and our gut and everything. And do you have hives here as well? No, that was one project that we were planning to do, but the trees took over this year. So um, the, the bees were meant, were meant to have hives this summer. And in fact, there's a hive sitting there waiting for them. Um, but I suppose what we've been trying to do over the years is not, I'm not so much focused on hives, but what I want to do is have as much biodiversity and as much bees as possible. So what we've been trying to do is plant trees and flowering bushes so that we have uh, a food source for bees if we do decide to have hives but I, I'm kind of more interested in all the, the, the wild the wild bees but yesterday we have a forest here a forest walk and I walked down and honestly the noise this buzzing this buzzing this buzzing and I looked up and there were all of the bees on the ivy having the eating the you know they're taking the the, the nectar, I suppose, from the the, the ivy is amazing. So, so that's kind of what we're trying to do is to create more of that the natural that, habitat yeah. for them, and yeah. then they'll just come. That you build build it, and they will come. Basically, yeah. I suppose you know each hive has what is it sixty thousand bees. And this summer there was quite a lot going on anyway with the farm, and I thought, oh my goodness, if I really want to take responsibility for another sixty thousand little creatures, but yes, so we we may you know just collaborate with a, a beekeeper and and work with them because. It's just another big thing. <laughs> and collaboration is something that you are very supportive of. You're, you were talking there about Lee Farm and we had Billy Joe O'Connor on the programme a, a few weeks ago. So, and you're, you're talking about supporting the local trades people as well and buying the resources locally. It's definitely um, a way of life that people should look to more. Well, I think, like I always say, like none of us are islands, you know, and the more that you can develop a kind of a sustainable food sector in your area. So we've Leah Farm, we've Ion Organics have just opened this amazing place outside Ballyduff as well. There's just, it's just like growing and growing all the time. When we um, started a couple of years ago, when, when I started the local food challenge, uh, the 30-day local food challenge, um, we also started a, a North Kerry GIY group. And there was about 20, 25 people in that. And I think all of those now have tunnels. So they're all growing their own food. So 
that's just extraordinary. When you look around North Kerry, particularly Ballybunion, Ballyduff, Listowel, Liselton, um, there's actually quite a lot of people growing food. They have their own bees. And I think COVID made people very aware of how fragile our food systems are and that we're relying... Like, I, I think it's amazing people don't think more about the fact that we're an island. You know, the 30-day food challenge sounds very interesting. Tell me more about that and what it involves. So basically, um, about what is it? it must be is it four years ago now, um, I was really concerned about food and, and the fact that, as I said, it's travelling so much and that we don't produce seeds in Ireland, so all of our seeds are being imported as well. So I felt like, oh my goodness, we really have to do something about connecting our farmers with the food that we're eating. Do you know, there's, there's a complete disconnect. So I started the 30 day food challenge, which is basically eating only th only food grown on the island of Ireland for the 30 days of September. So, um, so yeah, this, I, I, I just excluded drinks because Ireland, like having a cup of tea is just such a thing and it's miserable not having a cup of tea and coffee. So I, I left out drinks. But yeah, it's, it's basically to say, okay, where would you get your food if you tried to do it? You know, could you do it? Because a lot of people try it and they find it so difficult. And even you know things like labelling. You know, <laughs> I remember buying a, a an orange juice. This wasn't during the food, thirty day food challenge. Buying an orange juice and it said freshly squeezed in Carlo and it was an Irish product. And we don't grow oranges in Ireland, so all our labelling system has changed. So if something is produced here, as in the money is, um, what would you say? The profit, the profit is here. Then we can call it an Irish product. And it's not to undermine those those food products in any way, but what I'm interested in is what is growing in our fields and how can we sustain rural communities and farmers and growers to grow food. That's that's the issue. Not you know. Then there's all the other businesses that are doing things like creating jobs around food that's importing, say, rice and making sushi or oranges and making orange juice. But that's not the area that I'm interested in. But interesting that you talk about orange juice because there are alternatives there, like the apple juice, for example. Absolutely. You know, we don't really need to have orange juice, even though it is lovely. But maybe we should be looking more to things like apple juice because there are lots of apples grown here. There's Absolutely. lots of apple juice producers, and in fact, we import so many apples when we don't really need to it's Absolutely. something that we can grow sure, here there are trees there are full of apples now so it's a case of you know even I was trying to find a usually there's an apple press that goes around but because of Covid it's kind of hard to organise these things now but you know the fact that and even for children to do that to juice their own apples and it's just amazing and then you have this beautiful juice and I think it's kind of I suppose encouraging people to look exactly like you're saying and saying what have we got um, I think a lot of people this year as well were you know picking blackberries or they were picking mushrooms and they were doing it as a family they were really enjoying it and they were putting them in their freezer and having them in the winter so all of those things I think are really healthy and really positive yeah, because we are so lucky that we have the meat, we have the dairy, we have plenty of fruit and veg. Like, we, we should be fairly self-sustainable. Absolutely. Like, we have, I always say, here's the rain. You can hear the rain at the polytunnel there now. Um, we have all the ingredients. We are so lucky in Ireland. We have the soil. Our soil is amazing. And our soil in North Kerry is absolutely fantastic for growing food. Um, so, and we have plenty of rain. I mean, I, I was just conscious this morning that friends of ours live in California and they're very near the, the you know, the, the Napa Valley wine area. And that's, you know, it's, it's burning. And... You know, more and more, I suppose, in Ireland, we need to be looking at, well, what resources do we have and how can we step up to support global food production? Do you know, if, if we're talking about, you know, climate change and changing environments and so many people in, in the world maybe losing their farms or, you know, we, we, we need to think about as our, like how do we 
you know, provide food. And not just dairy and beef, which are more carbon intensive and everything, but just other food as well, horticulture. I think that's definitely something that I came to really appreciate and acknowledge during the COVID is that I have space, I can go out, I can get fresh air, I can sit out in a garden, I could get really whatever food I wanted to get. You know, life didn't change that much in terms of food and and drink. Um, the pace of life obviously was very different, but that was a very welcome advantage of the, the COVID. Um, like, I think whenever you're talking about California, and it makes me think about maybe expats that were in the likes of the Middle East, it certainly wouldn't be for me living over in a, in a country like that where it's so dry, it's so warm that they're actually importing a lot of Irish-type products that they can't get nice fresh milk it's all imported or it's well it's the same here i mean we're importing only two percent of our farms are growing vegetables you know we're the lowest in the whole of europe so <laughs> we don't need to look too far to see that i think the whole world is based on imports do you know and as you said like we're importing orange juice when we have fine apples or we're importing is it seventy-two thousand tons of potatoes a year and we grow potatoes. So that, that's the global trade market. Um, and I, I think we need to step off that bandwagon and really look at what we're doing and, and particularly in terms of changing climates. Like you'll see in the other polytunnel, like we've mosquitoes, you know, and that's the, the whole thing about climate change that Ireland is to become more damp, more moist. And I remember someone saying to me years ago, Ireland's going to have mosquitoes. And I thought, not at all. We've got mosquitoes, you know, and so it's it's already happening. And years ago, I went to see Madeleine McKeever from Brown Envelope Seeds, and she was doing a talk at Seed Savers, and there was a, maybe I don't know, there was a hundred or two hundred of us there uh, listening to her talk, and we were so excited, I was so excited to meet her because her work is all about saving seeds and promoting Irish food and everything. And uh, she stood up and she gave a fairly hard-hitting talk a couple of years ago about, you know, basically it's too late we have tipped, you know, we're, we're moving into a whole different cycle and, and that we need radical policy change, that us deciding to grow our little bit of food is not going to be enough. We need to do more. And I remember being really depressed and I said, oh my God, that's just awful. And then all our heads were hanging down. And I said, have you any hope? And she said, of course I have hope. She said, in 1840, we fed 8 million people on this island. We have an amazing capacity to grow food, but we just need to tap back into that before our older generations are lost, who have those skills and have those knowledge. And and I think, but we do need to move. Like we just can't be sitting, as you say, whatever part of the world we're sitting in and keep importing um, stuff to remind us of home or to remind us of, or maybe our sunny, our summer holidays and sunshine, you know? And I think we just need to eat what's growing around us and support people to, to, to grow, you know? You have a book, I believe. That's right. Um, I wrote a book um, called The Local Food Project. We were doing the 30-day food challenge and then people were asking me to travel around the country and, and do talks on food. But A, I was working and B, I was thinking, well, this isn't great for carbon if I'm going to be driving places. So I thought I'd write the book. So I wrote a book called The Local Food Challenge, which was literally about how important it is to grow local food and how it helps everything. It helps our health. Um, if we stop sort of eating so much sugar, it helps with obesity. Um, it's a win-win it's all around. Um, and it's, it's fantastic in terms of climate change and in terms of biodiversity. But I suppose it, then it has to be you know, clean, organic food. There's no point in saying we're going to grow loads of food and cover it in chemicals because that kills everything. 
and there was great uptake in the book. Oh, it was amazing. I was like, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. It was, it, was, it was fantastic. So literally the first print run was gone and then I had to do a second print run and I think I just have a few left in my studio now. Really, really good. Really good. And it's, it's lovely. I used to send, I still send packets of seeds if I have, if I've saved maybe marigold seeds from here or special seeds. And oftentimes people come back to me and they say, oh, I planted your sunflowers and I gave them to my neighbours and now all our road has your sunflowers. Fabulous. <laughs> and that's what it's about. Like we often get people sending us, us things as well. It's like that gift that keeps on giving, you know, nature. It's well, as we draw a close to 2020, there's only a couple of months left now in mm -hmm. the year. What are your plans here at the farm? Well, we, I mean, we have just planted 10,000 trees um, and that's been fantastic. And I suppose in terms of priorities, like the food and the local food is really, really important and we need to move, but, but we also need to think bigger picture. So absolutely we need to change what we're doing, but we were looking at ourselves and going, you know, like you mentioned, you have a garden. You know, we were thinking we've 20 acres. What can we do for the planet? And, and I really believe that trees are critically important and I suppose when I see the trees burning in in America and all over the world in Australia last year as well um, it really makes me think that the trees are essential so we we um, we planted with with Greenbelt we planted 10,000 trees so they're all native woodland so they're oak and birch and Scots pine and everything and holly and it's lovely. So that's that's been a fantastic addition to the farm. We also do um, social farming here. So we have people with disabilities who come every week um, to farm with us. Um, we have volunteers who come on a Tuesday evening. And we'd love to develop it so that maybe there's more of a, a community space here. Because at the moment everything runs out of our sitting room. Um, but we'd love, to, we'd love to see more of that. And we also run a lot of creative projects. Um, I'm doing a project um, with Lixna at the minute called the Floating Flagstone, which is looking at food in that area and climate change and, 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 and all sorts of things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and this is all in our evenings and our weekends. Well, thank you so much for having us here today. Colette is with me and thanks for the introduction, Colette. And if people want to find out more about the project, do you have social media, a website? Where, yeah, where should I'm, we send I, it's, people? it's ironic because um, I'm, I'm trying to stay off social media because I feel like, you know, this again, the whole conglomerates and, and, and data and everything else. But I have a website, lisafingleton.com. And then if people want to email me from there. and, and But I'm also on Facebook reluctantly, but I'm, I'm there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, great to meet you, Lisa. Lovely to meet you Thanks too. Thanks a million. Thanks. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're very welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Colette O'Connor and I visited artist, grower, writer and filmmaker Lisa Fingleton on her farm just outside Ballybunion. If you're just tuning in now, you might want to catch the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. Still to come tonight, blogger Helen Cook from thiswindinglife.org is going to encourage us to slow down and give advice on food and drink for sleep. Next, though, we're going to hear from Maria Shader from GS1. As you heard here on the programme a few weeks ago, the annual Blossner and Irish Food Awards took place at the start of October and highlighted the best food and drink producers in Ireland. In these current times, it's more important than ever 
to support your local food and drink producers. And Blossnerin and GS1 have championed an interactive map identifying their locations all across the island of Ireland. I spoke to Maria by Zoom before coming on air this evening to find out more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Maria, you're very welcome to the programme this evening. And I think a lot of the listeners are going to be very intrigued about the work that you do with food and drink producers in Ireland and indeed beyond Ireland. Can you just explain a bit about the business and what you do day to day, please? Yep, thank you very much for, for having me on. Uh, GS1 is a global standards body. We have an office in every country, so I work for GS1 Ireland. And we work with a whole range of different companies, about 50% of which uh, would be food and drink producers here in Ireland. And what we do is we work with companies when they're getting ready to go into retail. So if you're making that transition, for example, from farmer's market into retail, and you need to get a barcode on your product. It's at that point that a company comes to GS1 Ireland to get a license for an official barcode, which is the, the product's identity then as it moves through the supply chain. I think there's a few people out there and they're maybe making jam and bits and pieces in their kitchen, making lovely food, and they want to go and sell it at the farmer's market and maybe end up having it in one of the major retailers. And they really don't know about the different steps involved to get to that stage in a business because even before you go and sell it at the farmer's market you need to be in contact with your local health authority to make sure your kitchen is approved for example so once they get to that stage and they want to get it into the shop barcodes might not even be on their radar that's very true um, and that's why we've started a number of different programs such as best of irish to try and get, I suppose, information out there about the, the process and, you know, to start engaging with people when they're very early on in that journey. We also work with a lot of the kind of things like the Super Value Food Academy. Lidl and Aldi both have, um, you know, programs for growing with small producers. So, and very importantly, the local enterprise offices, the Leos, all run sort of starting your business courses and especially for food businesses as well. So we would work with those to make sure that there is content on those programs, that when they're talking about branding, talking about packaging um, and getting your product ready for sale, whether that's in a farmer's market or in a retail store, that you try and cover all those bases as early as possible. We have had examples in the past, for example, where you know, a company puts a lot of time and effort into their packaging, but they've forgotten, they did, or they didn't, they've either forgotten or didn't realise they needed the barcode. Um, and it's only later maybe when the packaging is printed. So we think it's very important to try and engage with food producers as early as possible in their journey so that they, you know, they do the step, steps in the right order. Um, we've also known from talking to different producers, both in, in food and in craft, that by simply having a barcode on your product already can be a huge um, decision-making factor from a buyer in terms of, well, how ready is this person to move into into retail and if you already have a barcode on your product you might be actually selected above and beyond another product that doesn't have a barcode because you're already one one step further down the line in terms of your your packaging and being retail ready 
And one of the other organisations that you work very closely with would be Blossnair and the Irish Food Awards. And you've collaborated with them fairly recently on a very exciting new project that is going to be of huge benefit, not only to the producers, but also to the general public. That's right. It's a great, uh, it's a great project. We've been very excited to put it together um, and it's still in its early days. We have huge ideas for what we can add to it and how we can literally, between us, between ourselves and Boston Heron, put Irish food and drink producers on the map. Um, the, the main goal of it really is to, to highlight them, to spotlight them, to make them, you know, increase their presence on the web so that if people are doing Google searches and things like that for local products, they might find them via the map and via the every producer on the map will have a page that profiles their company. And we'll add an awful lot more information to that. It has all their social media links, their website links and things like that. So that anybody coming across a product that they're interested in can make direct contact with the food producer. I think it all came back to one of the the, the Bloss Backyard sessions last summer um, when a chef who was speaking was talking about, you know, trying to source products within a 50 kilometer radius of his restaurant. Um, that got me thinking because I knew we have three and a half thousand members. So, you know, 50% of those are food and drink producers. I was like, I know I have this huge database of information about all these food producers. It would be great to be able to share that with chefs and people in food service um, and producers themselves to to build that community and help people source products that are local to them, especially given that sustainability and food miles are are so important. And this project is literally putting all these food and drink producers in all corners of Ireland on a map because it is an interactive map that is online. So anybody can pop on to the Internet and have a look at it and see who is on their doorstep. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's quite intuitive. Um, there's a search box and an advanced search box so people can type in, you know, Kerry and find all the producers in County Kerry. You can search by, you know, product category to look um, look under the award, maybe the award categories if you wanted to find a bread product or, you know, something from the pantry. So you're looking for jams or sauces. Um, you can search by all of those categories. And as, as you're searching, all the little pins will pop up for the people that meet that criteria. And then you can zoom in and, and find ones that are near you. We've also colour coded all the pins, so um, they're colour coded depending on whether people were a gold, silver, bronze or finalist level as well. So you can even filter based on, you know, show me all the all the meat producers that got gold or all the pantry producers that got gold um, and zero in on those. So it's quite quite interactive in terms of how you can filter the results because obviously there's, there's hundreds of producers involved. It was fantastic to have over 300 producers involved um, in, in being put on the map. I think it's a fantastic resource because we think we know what's on our doorstep, but actually that may not be the case. And even for myself, who I feel I'm very clued in and what's going on in the food and drink world in West Limerick, I was delighted to see whenever I looked at the winners for Limerick, we had, especially West Limerick, we had the likes of Carney's Bakery there in um in Lock Hill, it would be very well known to people in the community. 
And I'm sure now Murphy's in Abbey Field who won, um, I think it was a gold for their apple tart. I'd actually never come across them. So it was great to see that. And that's an apple tart now that I'll certainly go and, and look out. And to be able to pop into the map now and, as you say, see the social media handles, the website, all of that information just makes it so much easier whenever you're trying to, to find those producers and and it makes it easier to support them. And given the times that we're living in now, I think there is an onus on all of us to support our local food and drink producers and indeed all our local businesses. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing for me was, yes, even coming across companies that I already knew, but by seeing what products they had entered into the awards, I, you know, I was much more aware of the different products like that. So you, you know, looking for an apple tart. I think I was looking at some of the ice creams and there was flavors entered in that I'd never heard of that I definitely wanted to try um you know so it does actually you know give you the opportunity maybe to expand your horizons a bit and see see other products that um local producers or, or producers nationwide might have the other thing I found in, in looking through all the the data and that before when we were building the map last week and looking at the websites was just the sheer you know entrepreneurship that everybody had demonstrated in pivoting to offering online offering takeaway building online stores um you know it's great to see things like you know literally you know farmhouse cheese producers putting up websites we saw great collaboration between and i hopefully the map might even foster that even more but if you see what other producers are in your area people putting boxes together um maybe for weekly collection or weekly delivery and having a mix of products whether it's milk and cheese and butter and sausages and eggs and things like that and actually putting food boxes together that are all from your your local community so we're very much looking forward to to adding some of those features and functions in time and giving giving you know giving opportunities for producers to even connect with each other and further their reach locally Whenever you were talking about your organisation there, you, you mentioned it's a members organisation. Tell me a bit more about how that works. Very simply, when a a producer uh, looks to get a barcode for their product, um, you know, to identify their product, and it, it uniquely identifies that product for its lifetime. So that comes from a licence. So we give members a bundle of barcodes, basically, depending on the capacity that they need. And because GS1, as a global organization, is a not-for-profit body, um, by, by definition then, they're, they become members of the organization when they take out a license. So it's, it's, not, it's not a commercial organization. Um, there's, no, you know, there's no profits generated um, and, and shared with shareholders or anything like that. It all remains within the organization to fund the development of the standards and fund things like activities and awards and so on for for producers in certain industries. There must be a fascinating history behind barcodes and how they all started. How long have we had barcodes for? Certainly the majority um, of my lifetime, I think. I know. <laughs> make us all feel old. They've been around since about 1976, in the, so over 40 years, kicking off in the United States. Um at a time when they were looking at ways of and it obviously comes back to big shifts in retail if you think back to the post-war era where you went into a grocery store and you stood at a counter and you ordered everything you know off the the storekeeper and then they they started developing supermarkets and in order to get the checkouts moving faster and they looked at bringing in scanning but in order to make it work and that's where standards came into it they needed to make sure that every producer 
put the same type of barcode on the product. They couldn't have scanning systems trying to set up that if you know you imagine yourself if all the big brands of main products all decided to adopt a different type of barcode there'd be chaos at the checkouts so industry at the time between the producers and the retailers decided they would standardize on one particular format um so that's the the sort of the ean and upc that we would see you know the the, the barcode we see on all the products every day we never really think about um, so that's been with us for over 40 years. And then as those innovations in retailing spread across the world, uh, EAN, as it was known then, uh, started up here in Ireland back in the late 80s. And if you think back to power supermarkets and um, the, the supermarkets back in the 1980s and 90s, Superquin were very much at the forefront. Fergal, uh, was one of our, Fergal Quinn was one of our founding members. Um, along with Don Tidy, they you know they wanted to make sure that the same standards were brought to to retailing in Ireland. Set up EAN, and we had our back. I think for our twenty fifth anniversary a few years ago, we had to look back through the archives and found you know some of the original products and things like you know bachelor's baked beans and peas still have the same barcode on them today that they had back in the eighties. So that really just shows you that that you know it really is a unique identity for that product and it stays with that product for its lifetime so that's why it's it's very important for for producers to get their own license to get their own barcodes because it it uniquely matches them with their product um, and nowadays with online retailing and, and especially with traceability and sustainability it's even more important to know if you're looking at a product where has it come from who's the producer and you know, can I can I look them up on the internet and find out more? It's fascinating, really, because barcodes are something that we encounter every day, like everybody does, no matter where you are in the world, probably. So, yeah. as you say, it's something that you just don't really think about. It's just something that's there. So, I'm um, I'm being a bit of an anorak now. The way I'm very interested in the whole background <laughs> to it, and it's interesting that you talk about the likes of Fergal Quinn because with all of these initiatives, it always takes leadership and somebody to champion it and somebody that people can believe in. And obviously he was a real and continues to be a real powerhouse name in the retail world. So the map is up there now. If people want to have a look at it, and I think it's a great suggestion, what you're saying there, like for food producers to go on and look at it and see who they can collaborate with on their, on their, um, on their doorstep, because I'm a huge advocate for collaboration in your local vicinity and then obviously for just Joe Public if they want to find out who got what at this year's Blossom Erin Awards and to support those businesses where's the best place for them to go to, to find the map? Okay so for the Blossom map it's linked to directly from the Blossom Heron website or you can go directly to the url map.irishfoodawards.com and that'll show all the the Bloss uh, finalists and all the different categories and awards that they've won. Um, in time, there will also be a map on the GS1 Ireland website that will go far beyond the, the Bloss and Heron finalists um, to all the food and drink producers in Ireland that are members of GS1. Uh, so that'll be at map.gs1ie.org. It's on the GS1 Ireland website. It's not launched yet. And then in time, we will actually expand out beyond just food and drink into you know all the craft and artisan producers so whether you're making you know candles you're making knitwear um you're distributing 
you know, medical device products, looking for PPE. So in time, we will we will put every GS1 Ireland member on the map. But we started with, with Bloss and uh, and all the the best of the Irish food and drink producers in the island of Ireland. Fantastic. Well, it is an amazing resource, which I'm looking forward to using on a regular basis. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me about it this evening. Thanks, Maria. Thank you very much. Delighted to have the opportunity. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Maria Shader from GS1 told us about how she works with food and drink companies in Ireland and highlighted the interactive map identifying the location of the best food and drink producers on the island of Ireland, an initiative in collaboration with Blossnairn, the Irish Food Awards. And earlier on in the programme, Colette O'Connor and I visited artist, grower, writer and filmmaker Lisa Fingleton on her farm just outside Ballybunion in County Kerry. If you missed that and you're just tuning in now, you can catch the best possible taste repeat on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are all on my website, SharonNoonan.com, as well as iTunes and the podcast app. So our final guest this evening is blogger Helen Cook from ThisWindingLife.org, who is going to encourage us to slow down and give advice on food and drink for sleep. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Delighted to welcome you to the programme this evening, Helen. You've just recently started a new blog. It's called This Winding Life. Tell us a bit about the blog and why you started it. Sure, yeah. Well, thanks for having me, first of all, Sharon. I'm delighted to be joining you. Um, I started This Winding Life um, over this summer. Um, I found myself, like many people, with extra time on my hands due to the pandemic. So I was on leave from work and it was just the right time for me to start like tapping into other areas of interest that I've always had. Um, health, wellness, um, travel, culture, food, all of that. So all of the kind of hobbies and interests that I've had for many years that I wouldn't have had time to read about in depth or to do much about because like many people I found myself over the past kind of five ten years stuck very much in an unbalanced kind of lifestyle pattern where I was working extremely hard and not taking time for myself or just for my for my well-being I know that's a word that's thrown around quite a lot these days but it is something that when you're not focused on it can really throw you out of kilter um, with the rest of your life. So I found that I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't eating well, um, I wasn't exercising or moving. I was just stuck in this get up, go to work, sit at the desk all day. And I, I could be at the desk for 10, 12, 14 hours sometimes. And then home in the evening, something to eat, mind numbing TV and then bed and repeat. And I know it's a way that a lot of people can find themselves in. And then this year, 2020, a number of things all kind of came together at the same time. Um, I started a new job. Um, 
which then I ended up taking leave from because of the pandemic. But I started a new job. And even the process of starting a new job created that break for me. It created that mental stopping point and starting again where I was like, okay, new job. I can start to implement new habits into my life. And that was January. And then the pandemic hit in March. And suddenly going to the gym, you know, taking time to meet friends, all of those things that I was going to do this year were suddenly taken away again. Um, so I had to kind of reevaluate again and go, what can I do now to keep up with this mindset of looking after myself? So that's where the idea of the blog kind of came about. Was like, I'm going to try a number of different things this year and just record them and write about them and share them with maybe hopefully like-minded people and try and build a community of people that want to maybe just stop and take time. So the idea behind this winding life is that there's nothing in life that is from A to A to Z in a dead straight line. We all have like twists and turns in life. Um, sometimes everything's going really well. Sometimes we end up taking a step back. But what I want to kind of celebrate with people is maybe just stepping off that treadmill completely now and again so it's not realistic to say people have kids people have jobs people have lives to say like oh we can all be sitting around like meditating and drinking tea and doing yoga and taking baths and going for massages all that sort of thing it's not real life but what I'm trying to do is take joy and take time every day like take a little bit of time out um for yourself so just stop and take a moment, take a breath and see if there's something that you could slow down and do a bit better. So if that's maybe slow down and like enjoy cooking your dinner, you know, put on some music, put on a podcast, enjoy your food, eat slowly, eat well, you know, enjoy your walk, not just be rushing around with your Fitbit going, I have to get to 10,000 steps today. Maybe actually just enjoy being outside. So it's all those kind of little things. So that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping to do with the blog and with this winding life. Well, just as an aside to your 10,000 steps, we're a bit obsessed with that in this house, myself and the two children. And the other night I realized I was maybe like 150 steps short. So of course I was up dancing around the bedroom, but it, it wasn't going up after about half an hour, it wasn't going up. And then I realized I'd been doing fake tan, so I had taken the Fitbit off, so I didn't have the Fitbit on, so I had to start all over again. So I did kind of think, you're mad, Sharon, now this is not the way to do these things. And you're talking about the, the amount of time that you spent at your desk, you know, maybe sitting at it for up to 12 or 14 hours a day. And since people are doing a lot more working from home, I think that's probably happening more than we actually think. And you're having those coffees and you're not actually drinking the coffee. The half a cup of coffee is only is only consumed and you're not really even enjoying that half cup of coffee. At least that's the way I am a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to um, you have to be very conscious about these things, because I think with life as it is now these days, we kind of can tend to move through all of our activities in a bit of a fog or we're kind of rushing on to the next. And there's so many benefits to technology, um, how it can connect people in rural areas and how we can spread information, um, all the different things that are great about it. But it really does have its 
downsides. And one of the downsides is all of our attention spans have really shortened, really shortened. And I think that a lot of people who use smartphones will will attest to that. Um, I was an amazing reader. I could read for hours and hours. And now I have to really sit myself down to read a book. Um, or I can find that I get distracted. You know, when I fall out of the habit of reading, for example, or even reading newspaper on a Sunday, which is a, a really joyful thing to do, you can find you'll be halfway through an article and your mind starts wondering. And you might have to go back and, and, and start again. I think that's even, that in itself is a, is a very common side effect of how much technology we're consuming because that is so instant that our brains, our brains are very clever things. They rewire themselves very quickly and our brains are starting to rewire to this instant gratification. If we don't get that bing immediately, we have to go looking for it elsewhere. So what I'm trying to do with this winding life, and it's it's, it's for myself, Sharon, if other people end up joining me on, on this little bandwagon or journey, even better. But I'm trying to make that conscious decision, as you said, even with your cup of tea or coffee with your break is, you know, if you're if you have a nice garden or a patio or a balcony, even these cold, colder mornings, go step outside for 10 minutes with your cup of coffee in your hand and get a breath of fresh air, you know, or sit down with maybe a, a real magazine or a newspaper, read an article for 10 minutes whilst you're working from home. You know, we, we forget that in the office, when we're, I was in an office environment for a long time, and I found that we're quite distracted in the office. Your colleagues are chatting to you. You'll get up and go to the, to the tea room or to the break room. You know, you'll do this, you'll do that. A visitor might come to the office. When we're working from home, we can become even more stationary, as you said. So it's about really saying to yourself, what do I like to do? Do Would I like to listen to the radio like for 10 minutes, listen to a quick podcast? You said, really enjoy making my cup of tea, enjoy making my lunch. You know, and it's finding those little times. And then most importantly is getting up and moving. And there's plenty of things you can do for that. It's obviously, first of all, is getting out for a walk. But if you if you can't really leave the apartment or the house for work, you know, plenty of resources online at the moment with really quick 10-minute yoga, 10-minute breathing, even maybe get yourself a, a stepper, you know, the old-fashioned little step up and down and step up and down for 10 minutes, you know, even doing something like that. Um, if you have a stair in your house, go up and down the stairs two or three times every hour so that you're getting up and you're getting the blood moving and you're not just caught at the in the spare room or in the corner of the living room all day. And you said at the start of our conversation there about your sleep, you weren't sleeping well and food for sleep is something that you've written about recently. Yeah, so one of the topics I'm going to kind of take on myself like a challenge for October is to look at my own sleep and um, what can I do to improve that. And, you know, I used to think that I was a champion sleeper because I'm luckily not an insomniac. Like when I go to bed, I can just say to myself, right, time for sleep. And I'll be asleep within about 10 minutes. But if it's not restful, deep sleep, if you're stressed or anxious and you're tossing and turning or you're waking up a lot during the night or you're waking up tired, which is something that I was suffering from at the height of my stress and anxiety and burnout is 
I was sleeping for seven, eight hours a night, but I was waking up exhausted and I was waking up with my heart racing. Now, something's not right about that. Um, so sleep is the, one of the most crucial things you can do. So whether you're suffering from stress, you're trying to lose weight, you're battling with a health condition, or you just want to have better energy and better memory and better function. If the sleep isn't right, none of the rest of it will be right. Because as we know, so much happens during sleep. So our brains kind of do a sort of a, a almost like a, a memory dumping and cleansing. So they store memories, they get rid of other thoughts. The brain kind of does a cleaning at night. And then the nervous system does a, a restorative kind of calming at night when we're in deep sleep. And that nervous system is so important, as I said, for your energy levels, for your hormones, for all of those things. So food for sleep, yeah, is something that I've been um, looking at. And there's some very easy and quick things that you can do. Um, the key thing with food and sleep is magnesium. So magnesium is the, the supplement of sleep. And as I said, it helps to keep the nervous system nice and calm and it promotes deep, healthy sleep. So a great source of magnesium are bananas so having a banana towards the end of the evening or even having a banana as maybe your last snack of the day is a really good thing to do it's gentle on the digestive system and full of magnesium the other one as well would be almonds so if you're going to maybe like that snack you know after your dinner or you like something to kind of munch on a handful of almonds is really really good they're high in protein as well, so they'll stabilize your blood sugar. So your sugar isn't like spiking during the night. One thing to watch out for, of course, will be caffeine. Like we all know that, you know, and everyone has their limits during the day. You know, you hear people say, oh, I don't have a cup of coffee after 2 p.m. or I don't have a cup of tea after 5 p.m. So, but there are sneaky caffeine sources too, like dark chocolate. And I know that for people maybe who are watching their weight, they might say, oh, I, I love a few squares of dark chocolate in the evening. But if, if you're finding then that you're a little bit wired going to bed, maybe that's something that you could look at yourself, you know, um, and see, is it maybe actually the dark chocolate that's kind of keeping me up, you know? Um, so there are some things, of course, when it comes then to, to your actual meal, there's a lot of talk about, you know, eating late at night can like put on weight. I think there has been some studies to say that that's not necessarily true. It's more about, your movement and what you're kind of doing throughout the day and your own digestive system. So just the mere fact of eating late at night doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to put on weight. Okay. But if, if you're eating late at night, but you're kind of an active person and you're doing housework or you're doing something between eating late and then going to bed, then that kind of could be okay. So again, it's looking at your own circumstances, but certainly very high carbohydrate foods, um, or very spicy foods can cause the digestive system to kind of work hard or irritate the digestive system, which will in turn then make you less likely to fall asleep easily. Um, so there's some on the foods. Um, and of course, tea. I don't know, do you drink any nighttime teas yourself, Sharon? Are you, yeah. Do you like any herbal teas? I would love, I, I like peppermint tea, especially if I have been out for dinner. I like to have a peppermint tea after the dinner. I think it's very good, especially if it's a very heavy type meal and it's late at night. 
there's so many nighttime teas on, on the market and there's one for everyone and they, they can be really, really powerful in helping people to fall asleep and in calming people down. Um, some ones that I like are the Pukka range. You might see them. They were in health food shops, but now they're they're in supermarkets around the country, so they're much easier to get. Um, they're a beautiful range of herbal teas. They have a nighttime tea. Um, the main ingredient in that is oat flour. Um, I like it, but I have heard actually from some people, actually some ladies in my workout group, that it causes them to have very funny dreams, okay. very vivid dreams. So maybe be wary with that one, but you can try it and see if you like it. Um, there's also Twinings have a beautiful tea. It's spiced apple and vanilla, and it has chamomile in it as well and lavender. Um, and there's a couple of other kind of more luxury teas, um, Tea Pigs is a lovely brand. Um, you can get it in Holland and Barrett, I believe, and maybe in Avoca and a few places. They're lovely teas. They have a snoozy, sleepy tea, which again has chamomile and lavender. So chamomile is your is your best friend when it comes to herbal teas at night. Um, it, it's known to just cause us to kind of become drowsy, to become nice and sleepy, but not in a you know, not in a in a funny way that you feel a bit, you know, a bit woozy or but whatever. It it just really calms the body down. Um, there's also really nice UK brand called Off Blank Generation Tea. Now I will have all of these listed on my blog this month. So if anyone wants to go in and kind of check it out, they have a gorgeous um peach and chamomile tea, which is really, really lovely. Um and it's not as chamomile y. I know some people might not like the taste of chamomile, so a lot of these newer teas are pairing it with lovely fruity flavors, so it's nice to drink. But just as I was doing a bit of research for my article on the blog this month, I see that Barry's Tea have come out with a nighttime tea, which is great. Um, I haven't tried it myself yet, but I'd be really looking forward to trying it. And it sounds like it's an absolute hero of a tea because it's got lemon balm, lavender, chamomile and valerian root. And all of those are the big power haters when it comes to rest and sleep. So valerian root is a very powerful herb um, that is, again, associated with sleep. So it looks like they've got all the big hitters in there. So be looking forward to trying that Barry's tea. So, yeah, there um, there's some foods and teas, Sharon, that can help you get a good night's sleep. Great. Well, listen, fantastic. Um, thanks so much for sharing all of that with us. We we will definitely try that now as the the nights start to close in. It's nice to have that warming, comforting cuppa before you go to bed. So all the better if it is a cup that has sleep-inducing ingredients in it. And as you said, Helen, you're going to put this all up on your blog, thiswindinglife.org. And you're going to come back next month and we're going to talk about morning rituals um, in November. Yeah, so as I said... I'm setting myself up little challenges every month just to aid my own well-being. So this month I'm going to concentrate on getting good night's sleep. And then the opposite side of that is getting up and getting out in the morning. So hopefully we'll chat about mornings and all of that next month. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to that. In the meantime, best of luck with the October challenge and we'll talk next month. Thank you, Sharon. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
brings us to the end of the programme this evening. Thanks for listening and to all of my guests, Lisa Fingleton, Maria Shader and Helen Cook. And of course, a special thank you to Colette O'Connor from Delicious Kingdom. Until next week, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!